Um, so we're going to now spend some time reading the Bible, um, and before we do, I'm going to pray. So please, if you're a praying person, pray with me. If you're not, that's okay. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us and that you've created the world and us. And as we come to your word, help us to understand it rightly and help us think about um, whether Jesus is compatible with science. Amen. Um, so we're going to be reading today from the book of Luke. Um, Luke chapter 5, verses 15, 17 to 25. Um, so you can read along on the screen. If you do have a Bible, you can read along there as well. So one day, Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Uh, Good afternoon, and thanks for coming along today as we think about the topic of Jesus and science, and whether Jesus is compatible with science. Uh, my name is James Middlestat, and I uh, would like to refer to myself as the Pokemon collector of university degrees. <laughs> I currently have four bachelor degrees. Uh, and not the reason I'm telling you that, not that you smile at my academic parallels, um, but because one of those degrees is a science degree, and the other degree is the old degree. And those two things are going to give you my feedback incompatible in today's world. In fact, uh, earlier we had read out for us earlier sections from Luke's biography of Jesus of life. And in chapter 5, which we did have read out for us earlier, there's some very strange and incoming things. In fact, some of the strange, I don't want to suggest to you that for many of us today, the things we just heard about the paralyzed man being healed are downright offensive. And we just heard about the paraplegic guy who can't walk, and he gets carried by his man on the roof of a house. And they come out with a little bit of a renovation rescue team, and they reach him through the roof, and they land on the floor of Jesus' feet. And this rabbi of Jesus tells the paraplegic guy, who hasn't walked in years, who would have had muscular atrophy, to just get up and to go home. And you've got to ask the question are you serious to work? And this is just superstitious nonsense in our scientific age. Are we here right now in the history of science and religion? Finally, we've been freed from the oppressive dark ages in the past, and the post boys of new atheism have finally buried religious faith once and for all with a mighty shovel of science. I look at what Richard Dawkins has to say. He says, As a scientist, I am hostile to fundamentalist religion because it actively divorces the scientific enterprise. It teaches us not to change our minds and not to want to know exciting things that are available to be known. 
it's the most fast and fast to do all that same house. Because given that faith is generally nothing more than a mission, religious people give one another to believe strongly without evidence. A conflict between science and religion is unavoidable. What about the latest position? Because today, the least educated of my children knows much more about the natural order than any of the powers of religion. All attempts to reconcile faith with science and religion are consigned to failure and ridicule for precisely these reasons. This is big claims that scientists make. A claim that Christianity cannot answer to either marginalise what Christians have to say, or even worse, make Christians out to be liars. In fact, an evil force in this world that needs to be stopped or silenced. Well, my hope today, I want to suggest to you that perhaps the claims that are being made by the marketing department of the new atheists aren't as sturdy and solid as they seem. That maybe it's not actually so easy to dismiss the claims that Jesus makes. And so to do that, we're going to look at these issues from a number of different perspectives. Okay, so first of all, we're going to look at how the battle between science and religion has been played out historically. Secondly, okay, we're going to look at the philosophical claims that science makes. That is, what is science claiming to tell us about the world, and how does that compare what the Bible is claiming to tell us? And so we'll start with these two meta questions about the history of science and religion, and the philosophy of science and religion, and then we'll look at how that applies to the specific case example of miracles, and we'll look at how that applies to that story of evolution for five earlier. Now, apologies, if you're really interested in evolution, uh, there's too much to come in today's talk, so we've actually got other opportunities where you can come along and ask some questions to a panel of scientists, including a number of lecturers here at the university. And I'll see more about that again. Let's begin, first of all, with a story. Everyone loves a good story. And once upon a time, the world lived in darkness. And people were pretty happy, but that's because people were pretty stupid back then. And because they were ignorant and uneducated, big, powerful institutions, and did bad wolf, I mean, did bad church. They went around impressing people and discouraging everything exciting and things like science. Because who knows what would happen if people discovered science? Then they even begin to think for themselves. And who knows what would happen if people began to think for themselves? They may even begin to overthrow the power of the church. And that would be terrible. And so in those times, one man rose up. One man stood against them all. One man rose up to save humanity. The man, Galileo, Galileo. A Galileo uh, was an Italian physicist, a mathematician, an engineer, an astronomer, and he wasn't an interstellar, unfortunately. <laughs> and he was doing it that time. And because of his huge contribution to scientific knowledge and scientific method, uh, he is actually known as the father of modern science. And most people know that he is the one who invented the telescope. He is the one who actually showed us that uh, the ancient understanding of the universe were wrong. And in fact, the purpose was right in saying that the sun was at the center of the universe. And just as famous as his scientific discoveries are his legendary clashes with the Catholic Church, who labeled them at the time a heretic. Uh, many popular descriptions of Galileo, particularly this man who stood up against the church in a time of ignorance and was persecuted for those who believed. However, I want to suggest to you that that is a gross and simplistic 
oversight from what actually happened. You see, in reality, the LIA was actually a friend of the boat at the time, and these ideas were actually accepted by many of the clergy of his day. And while religion did in fact play a role in his early demise, uh, recent re-readings of the primary historical documents, you go back actually look at the original letter that was written back forward and forwards the day, that actual evidence indicates that his persecution was due more to the way that he presented his theory than to the actual content of the theory themselves. You see, the way that he presented his theory was like writing a story, a real-life story, and so he made two fictitious characters, one of them representing himself, and the other one who he basically called Simpleton, represents the Pope, and he actually put the Pope's word in the mouth of the Simpleton. And so even if his theories were correct, the way that he was proposing them by keeping satire and ridiculing the Pope, was never going to have any same failures. You see, Galileo had a break of personality, you liked him in rubs. Even if he did have some good ideas, they got passed down not because of their validity, but because of his abrasive personality. But over time, the story of these battles between science and religion, and this is not the only example, they have to get reshaped based on powerful, overarching stories. It goes throughout history, claiming that science and religion have always been in conflict. That science is always progressive, and that religion is always oppressive. Now, I don't want to claim for a minute that religious people, people claiming to be Christians, haven't done the things that in science that should not have been done. There have genuinely been instances, sadly, of conflict between the two. But overwhelmingly, on the whole, it is Christians who have fostered science and who have encouraged studying the universe precisely because of their belief in God of order. But ever since the rise of modernity, our people have begun to reshape the stories of the past, create a powerful reinterpretation of history. And they use that in order to oppose religion and to offer science as a better way forward. In fact, as the way forward. Because this assumes many things. It assumes that science is a superior way to know things. In fact, that science is the only way to know stuff. And that leads us to our second question, which is that we actually know stuff in this world. And one of the big problems with science and religion is their claim about what humans are able to know and how it is we know stuff in this world. Now, this is a study of what people like to call epistemology, which is not about engineering sitting drunk and urinating on the side of the It's a study of how do we actually know things. So, what I want you to do is turn to the person next to you and in one minute try to brainstorm all the possible different ways that you can know about stuff. Okay, you've got one minute to time to now. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
you guys still living in Experience, or experience from what? Perception and logic and analytics and Someone told me. Experiment. Experiment. Well, Chris is a nice teacher. And so, there's not really a way to know stuff, but in science, the way you know stuff is pretty simple. I hope you all remember it from your high school science work, usually you ask me. Basically, you start off with what's known as an observation. Okay, your observation may be something as simple like the grass is tall and it's been raining a lot in the last few years. And you then go away and you make a hypothesis. Your hypothesis might be something like, Raining causes grass to grow. That's pretty basic. And then you go out and you test your hypothesis. And so you go out and you measure the rate of grass growing when it has been raining, and you compare the rate of grass growing when it hasn't been raining. Okay? Based on that, you get some results, and they show you that grass grows five centimeters per week when it is raining, and then you can centimeters per week when it's raining. And based on that result, you then go away and make a conclusion that should be the grass. For a three months to guide to raining in the middle of the Observation, hypothesis, test, results, and conclusion and modification of the original hypothesis. Okay, that's the scientific method. We all kind of get in when we live in high school. But do you notice what the scientific method assumes? The scientific method assumes a number of important things. Firstly, it assumes that things in nature operate under consistent laws. It seems that things in life are not random. It seems that if I throw an apple up in the air, that the apple will always fall back down. You see, if an apple stayed in the air one time, and the next time I threw up in the air, it flew around in circles, and the next time it just took off into outer space, then the laws of gravity would not be consistent. And science can describe how it's consistent, but it cannot describe why it's consistent. Why can't objects behave however they want? And secondly, the scientific method assumes you can subject something to an experiment to work out how it will behave. That is, science relies on what we call replication or repeatability. And so if I do an experiment to see how quickly the grass grows, science demands that someone else on the other part of the world, using the same set of circumstances and controlling all the same factors, should be able to get exactly the same set of results. And if they don't, then either my initial hypothesis was wrong, or maybe they did the experiment Thirdly, though, science assumes that we can create true conclusions based on our data. Science assumes that we have all the information we need to make a valid conclusion. If we take our grass growing analogy, for example, what if another factor I have to take into consideration? Maybe when it's raining more, people go and throw fertilizer around the grass more, because it's so kind of in the ground. So maybe it's the fertilizer that's causing the grass to grow and not the rain itself. Okay. All science can do is describe associations between two different events. It can give you really good probable theory about how those two events are related, but it cannot give you a definitive explanation or conclusion because science cannot claim to have perfect knowledge of the entire system or so how do these limits to the scientific method I impact our debate about the existence of God and the truthfulness of the Bible? I want to say to you that firstly, it is the Christian God who provides a basis for modern science and the expectation that we have of consistency in the natural world. You see, in the ancient world, the Roman and the Greek gods were petty and cruel. They used to fight with each other, and you never know who was going to win, Zeus or someone else. 
And so you couldn't wake up and know whether the rain was going to come or the sun was shining because the gods were always fighting with each other. There was no predictability about how the natural world would act. Things were just random. But the God of the Bible is a God of order and not disorder. Because in the Bible worldview there is only one true God, He's not petty, He's not vindictive, He's not having all conflicts with other gods in this world. And so He is consistent and He's in complete control, and therefore we can expect that His creation will be consistent as well. We can expect that it's going to act in predictable ways. And so, therefore, rather than science being opposed to Christianity, Science actually arose out of a Christian understanding of the world away from the Bible. Secondly, though, the claims of the Bible are largely untestable by modern scientific inquiry because we cannot repeat the events of the Bible. Everyone has questions at the end, so if you want to have a look after the The claims of the Bible are largely untestable by modern scientific inquiry, so you cannot go back to a time machine and observe what happened. Okay? We cannot repeat the passage of the Israelites to the Red Sea. We cannot repeat the crucifixion of Jesus. We cannot even repeat the exam. And so while we can make really, really good assumptions, for the most part, we need to rely on the testimony of witnesses to tell us things. We do this all the time, though. We tell Channel 10 at 5 o'clock and have Channel 10 eyewitness news. You don't doubt the credibility of the news just because you think you're going to subject to an experiment just because it has eyewitness in front of us. In fact, most of life, we rely on the eyewitness testing of others to tell us about events that we haven't personally seen with our own eyes. We rely on people to mediate or pass on information about events that we have no personal experience of. Thirdly, though, we need to be aware of accepting the deductions that time makes in the way to the data. We cannot exclude alternative explanations for the results that we have. Uh, one good example of this is the reliability of the Bible. Uh, for years, so academic scholars have been criticizing the Gospel of John, John's biography of Jesus' life. Because in it, John talks about a thing called the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And the archaeologists have dug up Jerusalem and have not found any evidence of a Pool of Siloam. And so, based on their lack of results, they made a conclusion that therefore John was not an eyewitness who lived in Jesus' time. If you didn't live in Jerusalem, you must have been writing somewhere else and had no eyewitness experience of what would be going on. So then in 2004, only from 12 years ago, the Israeli National Park Authority did an excavation of conjunction sewers. And as they did that, they actually uncovered, and said that they dug a bit further, they actually uncovered this course along, which until 12 years ago, we had no knowledge of. And so that brings us to a really important principle to remember. And that is the principle that an absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence. That is, just because you don't have evidence for something doesn't mean that it's not true. It may just mean you don't really have the information. So just because we don't have evidence for something doesn't mean that it didn't exist. It doesn't mean we may not have observed it. And so when we hear of something like miracles, we cannot exclude them just because we personally cannot repeat them or we personally haven't seen them with our own eyes. It may mean that we haven't seen them because just like other historical events, they are unique events that are not repeatable. There's also a few other damage we need to get our science and notice stuff. And the first thing we need to be wary of is what's called the reductionistic error. Uh, in this process to understand stuff, science reduces things, it 
cause a pool of hard wheat based in lands. And using that approach, we've learned many important and exciting things. But that has advantages as well. You see, if you reduce your human body into your basic elements, you end up with six of the most boring elements on Earth, and you have 99.9% of your body. And if you sell those elements on eBay, that would work, be worth about $5 on the market today. Now, I'm sure if I suggest this to you that you are worth $5 as a human, you would be offended. Okay. We sell animals at more than five And so, to try and reduce something to its basic components doesn't do justice to the beauty and complexity of when you combine them together and what it means to be truly human. And yet, science does this all the time. And we hear it in our modern thinking and our society. Uh, around the time when you guys were born, when you guys were running around in diapers, I was in high school, and there was this band called the Bloodhound Gang. And they put out this song that had the line, you and me, baby, and nothing but animals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> you see, according to science, if we are just animals, if we can reduce the human race into animal behavior, then we should just act like animals. But we know that that's not true. We know that something more complex and something more beautiful than what it means to be human than just our primal urges. A second thing we need to be aware of is what science called the naturalistic fallacy. That is, science describes things, but it cannot prescribe things. Science describes things, it cannot prescribe things. It tells you what does happen, it cannot tell you what morally should happen. But science sometimes oversets that boundary and implies or even claims that whatever exists, whatever is natural, is good. Now, as a former medical doctor, I saw this all the time. Parents would come in and they would claim how vaccinations are evil and terrible, but they're artificial, right? They're not natural. And natural things like bacteria and pufferts are good for us. Except they forget the fact that for thousands of years, millions of children have died from natural things like the pufferts. And so we see the naturalistic fallacy in all areas of life. They just because something occurs or exists in nature, and therefore it must be good. One of the clearest articulations of this is singing out what we call a Lady Gaga this or this way. And she says, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Now, one of her, she actually has a moral argument that she's on the right moral track because of the natural inclination. Okay? She says that any condition or any urge or any desire that we have as humans, whether it's sexual or whether it's to kill someone or whatever it is, the moral naturalistic fallacy is that if anything you feel is good, and we shouldn't judge that because anything that exists must be morally good. Often times accuses religious people of having blind faith, uh, of being anti-rational. Often faith is described as the same sort of Mark Twain put it. He says, faith is believing what you know ain't true. But that is not how the Bible describes faith. The word faith in the Bible literally means the word trust. And trust is a normal part of how we do things all the time in life, how we know stuff. And you can have your trust in things that are reliable and things that are not reliable. And science, by its very nature, requires evidence-based faith. Trust that is based on the facts evidence because you cannot go and you cannot repeat every single science experiment that's ever been done in this world. All the stuff you read in your textbook, 
you most likely will never have experienced on yourself firsthand. And yet you trust in all the time. You live with a functional trust in your daily life every day. When you hop on a plane, you trust. You have faith in the airline. You trust that they can maintain their airplane well. You trust that the pilot has been well trained, that the air traffic controller has given accurate information. And you can trust your entire life. You put your life in their hands. Based on what? Science? Well, yes, it is science, but you yourself haven't gone and tested every little rivet on that plane. You haven't gone and certified the pilot yourself. And yet you live your life, placing your life in the hands based on the evidence of people who you trust. We do it all the time. So let's return to our example of Galileo, Galileo who heard that earlier. And Galileo is often held up as this example of the conflict between science and religion. But that conflict was actually due to some other problems. He said the problem was that not that Galileo and the church is anti-science, the problem was actually that the church was too scientific. You probably think, what? I can read the popular vote. He said the problem was not that the church was against science, the problem was that they backed the wrong theory. You see, thousands of years earlier, uh, it was actually Aristotle who proposed the idea that Earth was in the universe and the sun around the Earth. And as a church listened to Aristotle's theory of the universe, they were quite keen to match up with all the universe of the universe as well. And so they said, okay, that's what we believe as well. And so the problem was not about anti science, the problem was they believed Aristotle's theory of the universe, and they weren't open to reviewing it in light of new evidence of Copernicus's theory of the universe. Look at the recap historian and scientist, person that gets scientists. And this is a long quote, which is pretty good at articulating this here. Uh, it's been quite well. She says, The great purpose of healing and synthesis left medieval Christianity irrevocably tied to an ultimately faulty philosophy. By the time that flaws in philosophy were demonstrated, the upholders of the system, especially Christian, were so steeped in a risk of healing that they were unable to cope with the changes. The result is that Christianity was discredited as something that was nothing to do with. The same advantage potentially lies before us with theory of modern science, if we're not careful. Modern empirical science is an excellent route to knowledge about our physical universe. And most likely, a lot of what it promotes is true. Yet its very success lies in the contingent and reliable nature of theory. Empirical science is a system which is only ever probably true. And deliberately so, for by nature it must allow itself to be open to constant provision in the light of new evidence. Science advances by rejection of the old and the scrutiny of the new, and that is the strength and real value of scientific knowledge. Scientific knowledge is about us as humans trying to put some object or some thing under the microscope. And that is great when you're trying to learn about some object. But it's completely inadequate. We saw earlier examples of humans. If you want to try and get to know someone, and you can bung into a CD scanner, you can tell all sorts of things about you know, my kidney and my liver, and it's really fun. I'm showing my skin when they do really know. <laughs> but it's really inadequate to know what I like, what kind of things I'm passionate about, what I believe in as a person, what I care about in life. And that's why it's important to recognise that if there is a God in this universe, that it's important not just to know facts about him, put him in a CT scanner, but to know him relationally. You see, if there is a God, if there is someone who has made you, then it's important for you to know him 
just let me know your friend and your man. And the message of the one man in history, the man in Jesus Christ, claims to have actually seen God and be an eyewitness of God, and claims to have been God and to have come among us to reveal and show what God is like. And so I want to challenge you, are you spending so much time putting God under the master that you forget that he is the one who has you know that he wants to so what about miracles then? Uh, well, how do all the time random you heard earlier from the Gospel of Luke, which are a few Jesus as well? And don't miracles break those regular laws we were talking about earlier? And is it set to suffer from ancient mythology and finds to get monsters? As we turn our attention to the topic of miracles, it's important to think about how we actually define miracles. I think for most people in our society, we define miracles as a violation of the laws of nature. I think that today is a human social philosopher and that is, under his view, the world is all regular and clockwise, right? Just running along normally. And a miracle is when someone comes along and they interfere with the regular running of the universe and play around with the cause. Now, one of the problems with this view is that it assumes a view of God that is not necessarily consistent with how the Bible actually portrays it. You see, many of us have what's known as a deist view of God. That is, we view God as a cosmic clockmaker. And if there is a God, then the universe has a clock, and he wound it up, and he set it going, he got on the next bit, he stood back, and kicked him back on his bed, then he was watching some TV from my Xbox. Okay? And the regularity of seeing the universe happen because those clocks just keep kicking along by themselves. And so if we do see a miracle, it's because the clockmaker got a clock on his bed bag, he didn't see the clock, and he's actually going to remember the clocks and how long they run. But that is not how the Bible describes the God of the universe. According to the Bible, if the universe is a clock, then every time that second hand is moving, it only happens because the clockmaker is actively moving. It says in Psalm 147 that God covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the unradiant their crime. He gives snow like wool, he scatters cross like ashes, he hurls down his crystals of ice like arms, who can stand before his world. He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wings blow and the waters flow. The God of the universe in the Bible is active in the universe every single moment. And instead of being a cosmic clockmaker, the God of the Bible is more like the cosmic Johnny Eye from Apple. Okay. He's made this world more like an Apple Watch. That needs to be charged daily. It cannot last very long on its own. And even Apple iPhones allow it to do stuff to connect to the internet. It needs regular software, software updates and planning like Apple. You see, this is what the God of the universe and the Bible is like, because the universe is not self-sufficient, but it keeps ticking along only because he is actively working second by second to keep it running. And he chose one day to stop that the universe as we know we can. And in this biblical view of the universe, miracles are not God intervening, tinkering around with the cause. Miracles are God just doing something different in the way which he normally does in this universe. But let's actually go back and look at the commonly accepted definition of a miracle, which we've heard earlier from the ancient philosopher David Hume. He says, A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And as a firm and unalterable spirit can establish these laws, the proof against the miracle and the very nature of the fact 
is identified as a
You see, if I ask you how common is it that you fly by some Sydney Harbour, you might say it's pretty rare, one in 365, you know, that's the one percent. But what if I change this category and redefine it? What if I ask you how common is it that there fireworks on Sydney Harbour on New Year's Eve? Well, in that case, it's almost 100% frequency, isn't it? So depending what category or class you put something in, we'll determine the you think that can be one that happen or not. And so if you think about the resurrection of Jesus, if you think that Jesus is just the most human like the rest of us, then our experience of resurrection is that most people will die and stay dead. But if you put Jesus in the class of the one person who is fully God and fully man, and actually the first one of the dead, and the son of God himself, then that is a category and class in which we have very little experience. A category and class in which it may be completely reasonable for people to come back from the dead and to begin to use humanity. Secondly, your belief in miracles is also tainted and dependent on what you think the purpose of that miracle is for. You see, if I told you that your friend had quit university and they were living in a street, most of you would think I'm kind of strange. But if you knew that your friend was very passionate about the environment, and if you knew that Mark and Zimbal had just decided to end up in a shotgun and start bringing in rainforests, then you would be expecting your friend to act in ways that are consistent with what you know of. In fact, you would be more likely to believe that you're looking at a tree than some random on the street level. See, if you know the purpose of an event, then that could be a strange or unlikely to other people. So I want to suggest to you that as you look at the Bible's descriptions of miracles, uh, they're not designed to be part of you. They're designed to show you something about the fact that Jesus does the things that only God can do. He does the things to show that He is God. And so the case of Paraclesia came very from earlier in Luke chapter 5. This is not just some random miracle that Jesus was a punishment to kill some person. Because 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had spoken about a day when people would see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the dead are stopped, and the lame man shall live like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing from glory. Jesus does this miracle of the heavenly paraphernalia to show that He is God, that He is God who is coming to save and to rescue His people. And as this passage shows, Jesus rescues His people by bringing forgiveness. I want to touch today with a quick morning. That is, that science can often be for us a smoke screen. Uh, there's many complex factors that lead a person to believe or disbelieve in God. Some are personal experiences, some are intellectual, some are social. Sociologists and knowledge have shown that our key group and our primary relationship shape our beliefs much more than one could miss. And scientists, just like non-scientists, are very affected by the beliefs and attitudes of people from whom they want to respect. I think if I supply the mind of science, just like a religious person who might not mind a belief in God. And if the evidence doesn't add up, well then sure let's check out the evidence. But at the end of the day, what would be enough proof for you? Are you just using science as an excuse to ignore the claims that Jesus is making about himself in the Bible? You see, the Bible claims that this guy Jesus is not just a human, but he is the one who existed before this entire physical universe that science talks about. And he is the one who made everything we observe in the scientific world. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, with the throne of the power, with all the authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He before him, all things, and anything, all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his forms dwelling in him, 
and through it, he's directed how all things to himself by making peace to his life's turn across. Jesus is the maker and the sustainer of our universe. As we know in that final sentence, he's not just the maker and sustainer, but he's also the fixer of our universe. He reconciles all things in our scientific world to himself by making peace for his bloodshed on the cross. And this peace involves fixing for the humans, but much more fundamental, much more importantly, this peace involves fixing up our relationship to God. And so that's why when we read the story we heard from Luke chapter 5, and we get so obsessed with the feeling of paraplegic man that we actually forget what Jesus' main point was right at the top there. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. You see, that according to Jesus, Jesus came to forgive our sins. And that is your biggest problem, and that is more miraculous than any scientific thing that Jesus could have done. Jesus said, yeah, sure, he didn't come to paraplegia, that's a scientific difficulty. But actually dealing with someone's sin, dealing with your rebellion against God, is something that is much more profound, much more harder to do. But it is something that Jesus said that he can do, and he does do by on the cross. So the question is, will you let him deal with your sin? For all the time you push God out of your life and try to live without I can't encourage you, you ask the question today, is Jesus compatible with time? But I want to ask you the bigger question is, are you compatible with Jesus? Do you fit into his world and the world is going to make one of them, reconciles all things for himself and make him how it's supposed to be? I can't encourage you today that if you want to explore this further, there's a number of ways you can do that. The first way you can do that is by coming along with further factual opportunities. Okay, we have some more science-based ones. There's going to be an opportunity to think about the world technology state of the world with the professor for MIT. That's happening on month, next Monday, 1 to 2 o'clock. And also another one is Jesus descended from apes. A panel discussion about evolution. Okay? Come on with those things and ask questions and think more about this. So if you like to dig a little bit there, I encourage you, you also have these copies of Luke's library of Jesus' life. Now, Luke is a scientist, he's a medical doctor, and he wrote quite a history of all the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. So you can have certainly that things are going to be for. So the best way you can do is photocopy that. If you want that, if you want to start with your next card, then someone can see you with your card. And we want to read that in the description that you want to yourself. So the question is, will you accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness? Uh, so we're going to have um, a couple of minutes for questions. If you want to ask Jimbo questions, please feel free um, to send them through on that text. Uh, I have a few now, so if you want to ask. So the first question um, is, how does the inherent nature of decaying atoms and the predicted heat death of the universe fit into God's picture of an initially sinless creation in the Garden of Eden, which had not yet received the cursing effects of human sin? Yeah, so the question, I'll just cover it. The question is, how, does, uh, how do we make sense of decaying atoms and the that are decaying? Um, and yes, what we're thinking about decaying atoms in the wild until the third chapter of the Bible. It's pretty early on, but God makes everything in the very beginning good. Okay. God has an expression that everything is good, and then in chapter 3, humans come along, and actually, humans are rebellion against God, our sin, our rejection of God, that actually brings corruption and decay. Um, so, how do we make sense of decaying atoms before then? Uh, to some extent, we recognize that the Bible doesn't give us explanations about the theory at that level. Okay? But I also want to say they're really careful about assuming 
the Bible is talking about all of these aware of and aware of before it's in the world. Um, what actually happened on those two days, how long are those days, and how much I think we need to engage with. Not only encouraging Christians and different meaning from those things as well, but actually I think as you read the story of what happens in Genesis 1 to 3, God makes the world good, but it's human and human that actually brings in decay and corruption in our world. That doesn't just include Adam, but actually includes our, our thinking, it includes our bodies, and includes a whole bunch of things as well. Um, that's the last question I got texted in. If you have a question, you can go on to ask. Yes. Yeah, so I'll just text it. So, so how does it make sense if those people the church believes in so much in science, you said they were too scientific, that they're not open-minded to the new ideas, which is exactly what science is going Yeah, so why didn't the church in those days open-minded to new scientific theories? Yeah. I think it's not for very much, but people have always resisted new scientific theories. People have always resisted to new theories and new ways of living. They're not scientific, the scientists wanted to throw something. Yeah, science does. And yet science is not only the most resistant to change. So this thing has Darwin for his theory revolution. Leading biologists of the day actually discredited him. And actually, Christian fundamentalists have said that they're Darwinian in the spirit of war. And so actually, this idea is always opposed, and not just going to have that in history. And actually, this is where we're how neither science is continuous and reliable. It's actually only happening in the world as a normal theory. Okay, so it's like saying, like, who's that thing? It's good, but like there are some bad Christians. It's like scientists promote our Christian but there are some bad scientists that are Christian, and that's why we're looking back to the evidence. I'm looking at the evidence more scientists. So I wouldn't really say it's correct that you say there are two scientists, because I don't think there are two scientists if they're not really interested in science. No, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I'm looking at the data, it's all evidence of science. We're getting a version of the weekend is 21st century science. I can see that we're actually making a huge version of the story. We're going to be looking at the data. Okay, we might continue that. We can continue that conversation at afternoon tea afterwards. Um